This is the EPLOG audio experience. Every once in a while, go someplace you've never been before. True for traveling, true for life. But does travel really change you as a person or is it a romanticized idea? How can you make the most of travel experiences? What must you do for sure? And most importantly, how do travel experiences shape personality, behavior and impact careers? Hello and welcome to our very special Wonder Women series on Voice of Achievers with me Yashika. We have a very special guest on our show today. traveler explorer author mother let's welcome monisha rajesh an author and journalist whose writing has appeared in the time magazine vanity fair the new york times the guardian the sunday times and the sunday telegraph in 2010 she embarked on a four month journey around india by train using 80 train journeys to reach the furthest points of the indian rail network She's documented this in her book Around India in 80 Trips. This her first book was named one of the top 10 books on India by the Independent. Her second book Around the World in 80 Trains won the National Geographic Travel Book of the Year and was shortlisted for the Stanford Dolman Award. Monisha was born in Norfolk and raised in Yorkshire. with a brief stint in madras she currently lives in london with her husband and two daughters and she's been kind enough to talk to us in between her explorations so happy to have you on the show oh thank you for having me on monisha this is such a romanticized idea that we are fed with traveling will change you traveling will transform you go travel go explore we hear this so often now because you've done this across the years tell us how it shapes individuals especially if you know you've been traveling early in your career well um i suppose i could only really speak for myself but travel does change you whether that's for the good or the bad um that's for each person to answer but i would like to think it's more for the good than anything else the main thing that travel does is it gives you different perspectives it offers you different ideas of the way things are done it shows you how people approach so many different things for example how people cook how people dress how people speak how people think and one of the easiest ways to understand those cultural differences is by traveling and the only way that you can really understand something about another country um or simply just another culture or religion is by actually immersing yourself in that as much as you can read books or you can read articles what you're reading is always somebody else's opinion but when you're actually in a country and you're surrounded by people and you're i suppose forced out of your comfort zone and you are made to embrace where you are and open yourself up to things that you've maybe not thought about before you're put into a position where you have to reassess all your preconceptions about things and and how the world works travel for me has made me a much more patient person mm. it's made me a lot more tolerant of things that i would once have found 
little irritations like being pushed around in queues, people stepping in front of you, being nudged out of the way, people taking your seat, all these small things that we get riled up on a day-to-day basis. I don't find those things an annoyance anymore. I think one of the biggest things for me that I've learned is to challenge my own preconceptions about other people because travel for me is not about myself and in the past I feel like a lot of travel writing has centered on the person who is doing the traveling and how the rest of the world has responded to them and how all the new people that they meet have responded to their presence and their being in a room and I find that quite narcissistic to a degree. I didn't recognize my own experiences in very many of those books largely because most of the books are written by men, but they're also not just written by men, but written by white men, and but very privileged, very posh, school-educated men. You know, this is an interesting point you bring up, uh, Monisha. How do women see and perceive travel differently? And how does the world perceive them differently? Oh, well, women are seen in very many different ways. And as I was just saying, it's it, the intersectionality about the way you know we all exist um plays into travel enormously whether you're able-bodied whether you're disabled whether you're gay whether you're straight whether you're trans whether you're black whether you're white whether you're a woman all of these things play a huge role in not just the way you approach everything around you but the way other people respond to you and that's something i've become very aware of when i've been traveling that as a straight cis, able-bodied woman, I have often taken for granted um, accessibility on trains. I've not really considered the fact that a lot of them are very inaccessible to people using wheelchairs. I haven't thought about how easy it is to take hill station rides. I've just just little things that I did mm-hmm. never really crossed my mind until readers would contact me and say, could you let me know whether this is something I'd be able to do? Um, I'm not able to walk very well. Or people would write saying, I use a wheelchair. Has this got good accessible compartments for me if I want to do the sleeper service and and I was quite humbled by a lot of those emails and messages because I realized that I had got a lot of privilege with my traveling and and also having a British passport that's something that I took for granted I was born in the UK I have this passport that (laughs) up until a couple of years ago gave me great access to most places and I only realized in the last year how many hoops people have to jump through to get visas for you know, Nigerian women traveling in Thailand have to get a letter from their fathers. I was reading in a book recently, um, a fantastic book actually called Traveling While Black by a woman called Nyanjala Nirbola. It's extraordinary. And, and I thought as a brown woman traveling that I had it difficult sometimes, but reading about her experiences took it up a whole other level for me. And that's why I think reading books by people of all nationalities and different sexes is really important and different backgrounds working class people have a very different approach to travel um because it's not something they're necessarily able to just do on a whim Um, and when i think back to a lot of the books that have always been in the shelves when i was younger but um, i like how you bring uh, up the privilege you do have the privilege to go out there and travel and go out there to these 80 places but there is also that preconceived notion or perception that well this is a woman traveling all alone all all by herself tell us if there have it has been tough for you while people or the society may have perceived you differently 
Has that been the case? Oh, yeah. Well, the India book alone was very telling for me because when I first came out, it was in January 2010, I came along with a friend of a friend who was a photographer. He was a six foot blonde Norwegian and people just assumed immediately that he must be my husband. They couldn't even get their head around the idea that I, a single woman, had come out with a single man to travel and there was no relationship and that we were just working together. Then in an odd way, I was actually quite happy with that because I didn't get hassled. I didn't have people approach me and start asking questions about why I wasn't married and why had I not had children. I was regularly asked when he had gone off to get a coffee and wasn't around, where is mummy, daddy? (laughs) Um, You know, where is your husband? And I found it, I mean, I found it all funny. I took it all in quite good spirits because I don't feel like people mean, they don't mean to be inquisitive and rude. They're often just very curious about what you're doing. And being Indian in India was very helpful to me because I was left alone most of the time. And only really when I opened my mouth and made it quite obvious that I clearly wasn't from India, did people then sort of look up and then ask what I was doing and why I was there. Um, But even then, when I said I'm traveling for four months, I'm researching a book about Indian railways, they were always really taken aback that, firstly, why would I be interested in Indian trains? Because they're dirty and they're slow and they're, you know, horrible to be on. But for me, that wasn't the case. And I suppose I did have an element of nostalgia when I was traveling on my trains, because those long, long journeys on old trains were, they were great fun for me. I had nowhere to be anytime soon. Um, I didn't have to quickly get to my destination. I didn't have a meeting to get to or anything like that. So whenever people said to me, why are you taking this train? You should take the Shatabdis or the Durantos. And I said, well, I, I could, but I, I want to sit in the window and I want to spend hours and hours looking out. And so this was a chatting. planned uh, journey? This was a yes, planned. it was. Okay. Yeah, it was very planned. I So my plan was not necessarily to travel by train everywhere. The plan was to come to India and spend four and a half months just traveling around as a tourist. Uh, When I was nine, my parents moved back to Madras because they were both doctors. They trained in Madras Medical College where they actually met. And then they moved to the UK to train as doctors. And they'd always planned on traveling, sorry, not traveling, going back to India and setting up there. And so they did. They took me and my brother back and we lasted about two years, maybe, uh, because it just changed so much. My parents had been away for 15 years and they just couldn't really fit back into life in India anymore. It had moved on. And so we came back and I didn't go back to India really for about 20 years properly. So if I read it correctly, you planned this journey with the intent of writing about it. But then the train travel happened eventually. Is that correct? Yeah. So the plan was, I thought if I go to India and spend four or five months really getting to know the country properly, I could do a book out of it. I trained as a features writer. I had started doing little bits of travel writing here and there, but just brief bits for newspapers. I'd never done a book. I had no agent. I had no publisher. I had no idea how the whole thing would have worked. But I knew that if I went out there and I gathered all the stories that I would get and talked to people and came back with enough colour, I could probably put a book together. And I think what frustrated me was that I had seen lots of people write about India And to me, they were very unrelatable experiences. It was often white people exoticizing India, writing about saris and cows and goats and the smells of, you know, and spices. And I thought that's one very small element of it, but there's nothing beneath that surface. And I wanted something more concrete that 
actually went into talking about people. Tell, us, tell us three things which, according to you, would uh, be worth exploring and that you think aren't surface level in that sense. Well, I was interested in talking to young Indian people. And all the books that I read never really did that. The, it was Again, it was centered on the person going to India to find themselves. They always want to discover themselves or do it through religion. And it just felt, it was very cliched to me because I had no interest in any of these things. I just wanted to know about young people in India. I wanted to know how they felt about their country. I wanted to know what young people were doing at university. Where did they go out? You know, what do they do? What do they want to do when they're older? And I was tired of reading about arranged marriages and, you know, all these old boring things. Because I know that, you know, life's not like that anymore. Mm. But I couldn't ever find those stories. Um, and so I thought, let me come out here myself and meet people. and go to all the more interesting big cities, not just traveling in Kerala or Goa or Varanasi, but to all the cities in between and the villages in between and just to see what life is like there now. And off the back of that idea, I thought, well, how can I do this in a way that will allow me to meet people easily? Because I can't just, you know, wander up to a big group of students and say, can I sit down and chat to you? And I realized that just by sitting on the trains, I could listen to people's conversations. I could get chatting to people quite easily. And I would also come face to face with a sort of demographic that I wouldn't necessarily meet otherwise, because whenever I went on holiday to India, I would, you know, go out to posh people's houses and friends' lunches sure. in hotels and things. And you don't get to meet everybody that way. And so at least on the trains, I got to, you know, I could travel from one class to the next and through eight different classes and categories yeah. on board, I would meet all kinds of people. And I met such fantastic, you know, everybody from laborers selling all kinds of fun stuff. Was it scary at some point, Monisha? Yeah, definitely. I'd be lying if I didn't say it was. Um, but those moments were very few uh, and quite far between. And I, I'm sure that a lot of that is down to the fact that I had this photographer with me. <laughs> and so at nighttime, it was obvious that he was there and I was sleeping in my berth and we were a pair. Um, I still did get, I still got groped on the train one night. I still had people hassling me. On the platforms, if you went off to get water, people would gather in a circle and they'd start taking pictures of me. But, you know, that's not unique to India. That still does happen in other countries. Right. And I didn't feel as threatened as I know a lot of other people have. But also, and I, I hate saying this, but I did also take precautions when I was traveling. I didn't go anywhere really late at night. And I hate that sort of victim-blaming attitude of, you have to stay home at night time. You've got to dress correctly. You have to cover yeah. yourself. Don't interact too much. But the truth is that that is unfortunately how it can be out there. And so you have to do what you need to do to stay safe. And so I wouldn't really want, if I, when I was traveling alone, because we separated for a while, we had a fight, <laughs> quite a lot of fights actually. Yeah. And so I went off on my own for about five or six weeks um, and the difference in how people responded to me when he was there and when he wasn't was really telling as to how people view a woman traveling alone. And I did feel suddenly very, very vulnerable and very just open to anybody approaching me and talking to me and sitting with me. But for the most part, people were really kind. And when they saw me alone, families would always invite me into their compartments. They would take my number and say, call us when you get to the other end and yeah, yeah. tell me that they had cousins who lived in some village nearby who would call me and check on me. And they did, they always rang. 
They yeah. made sure I was okay. I had quite comfortable. I actually felt quite safe. And I, I know I'm so aware that that's not always the case for a lot of women who travel alone in India, but I perhaps I just got very lucky, um, but I was okay. You spoke about cultural experiences and the fact that one becomes more aware and starts embracing aspects of different cultures uh, hmm. and, of course, different people. If, if there are one or two instances or stories that you remember. From India specifically or from... Anywhere. anywhere. Cultural experiences. Okay. Well, um, I was just thinking, I was in Sweden recently and everybody eats reindeer stew, which is not something that I thought I would particularly like. But reindeer is very, very plentiful out there. And that's just the typical meat that everybody has. So for the seven days that I was there, I think I had reindeer stew almost every day. I just thought this is what they eat. And if I'm going to understand how Swedish culture works and how they live and why they live the way that they do, I have to do what they do. And so I, you know, I went out to the where the indigenous people um, originally come from and we saw how they live and the reindeer skins that they use to wear that they cook, we found out how they salted the meat, how they preserve it. And so I ate what they traditionally ate um, and we drank what they drank. And you just get involved in that way. And that way you also, you get to talk to people a lot yeah. more. When they see you embracing what they do, it is obviously quite stark to people if people reject the food or they quite evidently don't want to partake in something that's seen as quite typical. Um, and it does make you stand out quite a lot. Um, and one of the other things that I do remember specifically was it's traveling through Russia. Everybody on board the Russian trains used to wear wife beater vests, uh, the singlets and slide on shoes to go. Because when you go to the toilet, it's easier to just slide things on and off when you're getting off a berth all the time. Right. And everybody used to walk around in leggings and these vests. And I found it quite funny. But after six or seven days on board the same train, um, you end up just doing what people do. And we did the same. We ended up realizing that it was so hot on board that you just have to. So we were all walking around in vests um, and long johns and that was it and slippers. And it just feels normal. It just becomes very normal. And you can see people kind of laughing when they see you do the same thing. And then they just they just you sort of get embraced into their fold. Yeah. You um, know, this is this is a very interesting aspect because you start seeing people uh, or people start seeing you do the things they do and then they become more comfortable. What are yeah. the things, according to you, Manisha, when young people go out traveling? Because this is something that most young people do during the early stages of their careers, early stages of their work life. Uh, mm. They want to go out, travel, explore. What are the things they must do for sure, according to you? Um, do you mean in places that they should go or... Just in terms of experiences? In or terms trying. of experiences. I would say make yourself uncomfortable. I know it's an odd thing to actively go out and look for something that's going to make you feel uncomfortable, but it does give you good practice in realising when bad things happen to you later on in life that you're quite well equipped to handle them. And I think if you put yourself in a situation where you do feel very uncomfortable, maybe trying out a sport that you've never tried before, hiking maybe on a mountain if you've never done that before or taking for example when I was in Sweden I, I'm not a big climber and when we were going to climb a mountain at about nine o'clock at night to go and look for the aurora borealis the northern lights 
the woman was asking us, um, how much climbing have you done? And my photographer was naming all these different mountains. And I was thinking, I've probably climbed my staircase and that's about <laughs> it. And she said, okay, well, we can take it slowly. But, and I was quite scared. I didn't want to say I'm petrified because the next two hours is going to be hellish and I'm going to be tired and sweating and panicking. Um, and it was dark. It was an outdoor snowshoe trek at night in the forest, in the snow. And we set off and I was amazed by how much I managed to do. It was fine. She took it at the pace that I was comfortable with. Um, she let my photographer go on ahead and climb up different routes that he wanted to do. And she was absolutely fine about it. And it turned out that actually climbing a mountain at nine o'clock at night was not so bad. It was a nice leisurely route that we took. And we got to the top of the mountain and we saw the Northern Lights, which was just an incredible experience to actually see them at the top of a mountain. It was minus five degrees. Um, it was a bit scary because they have got a lot of wild animals around there. But she said, they're more scared of you. They're not going to come at you. Nothing's going to happen Maybe five or ten years ago, I would have probably said no to doing something like that. Yeah. But that feeling of exhilaration when I got to the top and I'd done it and I had survived and I hadn't frozen and it wasn't scary. And we and with the payoff that we got to see the Northern Lights from the top, it was lovely. And I and I really like setting those small challenges. They're really little. It's just a small thing, and it might just be something that you don't tell anybody about, but you know that it's pushing you a little bit further out of what you're used to. Um, and I think you can apply that to when you start a job. And yeah. I think especially for women, when women join a new company or start a new job, often they feel like they've got an element of imposter syndrome, that they're not qualified to be doing this job and that somebody might find out. And I often think you should apply for that job the way a man does because they just get the job and then figure it out once they get there. Um, yeah. And I know this from talking to a lot of male friends who will just go for something that they're so, is so out of their depth, but they'll talk a good game and they will make it through the interview and they'll get that. Whereas women who are probably overqualified for something still don't think that they're good enough to be there um, and then panic. And I think all these little things you learn when you're traveling, that you're actually more capable than you realize um, and that you are able to survive when you literally jump into the water and need to swim you you can apply a lot of that and you end up building a confidence i think that right. you don't get on the job or in a sort of everyday work environment that you do when you go traveling because you realize that you're actually able to you can see these things through mm. um and what scares you does actually often thrill you by the end of it and make you a lot tougher to plan or not to plan the travel oh a bit of both definitely a bit of both i'm i'm not somebody who can plan properly because I think when you do plan everything, it becomes very boring reading. And because I'm always writing, knowing that somebody is reading what I'm writing and they want to have an enjoyable experience with my book. That's the main thing. People don't necessarily just want to learn and to write down notes because that would I would have to write a guidebook if that's what it was going to be. But people want to read when things have gone wrong. They want to read how you felt when you missed your train or yeah. how you got out an awkward situation and if I just planned every single journey I'd left days in between where if there was a delay or cancellation it was all fine and I just got the next train it would have been a really boring book so things need to go wrong and it's difficult for me to travel the way I used to because I have got two children now they're four and two and I have a dog and my poor husband is you know he, he's the one that looks after them when I go away and 
I had to carefully pick this window of opportunity to go for 10 days. And when I did get up to the Arctic Circle, this train that I was supposed to be traveling on um, couldn't run because there was an avalanche. And I was absolutely raging inside because I'd come all this way so far and it wasn't running and they had to turn around and go back the other way because of the snowfall. And there's nothing I could do about that. No amount of planning could have changed that. Um, luckily, I was able to take it the next day. I stayed an extra night and we could take it. But yeah, stuff like that happens. And it happens when you're traveling normally and you're not writing a book. So people do want to know that you're like them. And yeah. that when it was wrong, it's the same experience for everybody. You know, this also brings me to some aspects of travel that we tend to romanticize. And like you rightly said, there are some books and just films and that make us feel that it's such a beautiful thing. And uh, it may not be so always. Like you said, there are uncomfortable situations that you may miss the bus, miss the train, both really and figuratively. What are the parts of traveling that are uncomfortable or that we romanticize? Maybe some myths that you want to break. I think the difference between the romantic travel and the uncomfortable travel is that when you're traveling for fun and for holiday and for adventure, it doesn't matter how delayed or broken down or dirty a train is because you that that sort of is your destination. Your journey is part of all of that. And you have nowhere to be urgently. So it doesn't really matter if you're broken down for a couple of hours. You can just wander around, get some food, chat to people, and then you'll move on again. But I think when it's your every day and that service happens to be for commuters as well, and they're frustrated and they're annoyed. And on the one hand, there's me sitting there romanticizing this journey, thinking of how lovely I get to break down in the middle of this lovely countryside and eat fruit that I've never had through the window and they're really frustrated because it's a dirty train. It's an old train, which is why it's broken down. It's frustrating for them because they need to be somewhere on time. And then I go home and write about what an amazing romantic journey this is. Yeah. Um, and they read it and think, well, it's not. It's frustrating for us. We want better infrastructure. We want trains that are on time. We're paying our taxes. We're not getting what we want. And I can absolutely see how frustrating that can be for people. Is there a stigma associated with traveling in trains in India? The only thing that's very affixed to Indian railways in the minds of most people is that they are very romantic. It's a kind of long distance, eyes meet across the room sort of thing. And I mean, even some of the adverts that they have on TV of, you know, people running to one another across a platform the trains are going across lovely bridges and rivers. And, and you know, a lot of that's true. They, they, they travel through some of the most extraordinary scenery. Right. Most of them, I think the most beautiful journeys I've done, half of them have been in India. Um, but Indian Railways is just, it's so complex. It's just got so many dynamics to it that I've not seen anything like that anywhere else in the world. I think perhaps China could probably come close in what the railway network is like, but... In terms of the kind of uniqueness, the, the kind of colour and the noise and the, just the general, it's like entering another world when you get onto an Indian train. You, you, you feel the second you set foot on that train that you're, you're getting into a dimension. Lovely. It's going to be outside your, your kind of general worldview until you get to the other end. And yeah. then when you step out of it, it's like you stepped out of some kind of bubble and then gone back to everyday life. And I love it. I absolutely love that. And I've never felt that anywhere else in the world so far. And one of the biggest things 
that makes that happen, I think, is because everybody speaks English, or at least the majority of the people on board mm. do speak English, even if it's a tiny bit, which makes interacting with people really easy. Whereas yeah. when I was traveling in Russia or traveling in China, I just couldn't speak to people unless there happened to be someone who was bilingual. But otherwise, it does make it really hard and you lose all of that joy of communication when you can't speak the same language. And I think that's why that's why Indian railways, I think, are so accessible yeah. for people, because you can just get on and anybody can just get chatting to you and you, you you find out so much you can find out everything I mean even the hawkers will speak your language the tiny kids yeah. will speak your language and yeah it's it's I mean it's a horrible kind of colonial hangover but at the same time it's one that works for everyone no, talking of hangovers I see the world map behind right behind you and I see all of those colors and those marked uh, places yeah. we can't leave you without asking you what have been your two best journeys you know uh so my favorite train was the Qinghai railway which went from Xining in China up to Lhasa in Tibet and it was 26 hours from Xi'an to Xining an incredible journey for a couple of reasons the first one was that is like nothing I've ever seen before and never will because of I mean literally traveling where you are um, that height, um, the elevation is, I think it's 5,200 meters above sea level. And it's the high, it's got the highest train station in the world at the Tangula Pass. And when you wake up in the morning on the train, you've already reached the, oops, sorry, the Tibetan plateau. And you pull up the blind and this incredible, just blaze of light comes in reflecting off the sand. And you've got this, okay. and the scenery changes so much over the next kind of 10 or 12 hours, you get yak dotted around on the landscape with you see all kinds of tibetan prayer flags hanging you get all the um the yurts nomadic yurts everywhere and then suddenly you get the kundlun mountains which are just blue ice and the train runs right alongside them then you descend into the valleys suddenly you get mountains and it's just i knew when i was on that train that i had to just sit at the window and just soak up that scenery because i would probably never see it again in my lifetime um but the other reason why i love that journey was that the dining cars and the food on board was just incredible really really good food um and that you get that hub of just noise and people chattering and again I couldn't read the menu but we would just point to we'd point to whatever someone else was eating and ask them what it was and then the staff would say okay fine and they would bring it over or we had a little piece of paper where we would draw a fish or a chicken and they would point to whichever one it was and then we'd say okay fine we're happy with that um, and I just remember that we were just on the way to Tibet watching Frozen and eating dumplings. And it, it was really fun. It, it is like a camping trip when you're in those compartments with friends and you just bring out whatever food you've got. And then you just chat until you eventually all fall asleep. And it was incredible fun journey. I think that's why I like them. They're so communal in there. What's the other? What's the other best? Oh, the other journey. Um, I did the... Venice Simplon Orient Express. Um, it was just a one night thing. It's one of the only luxury trains I've ever done. People assumed that all my trips were first class and fancy services, and actually they're not at all. Um, I did this, it was a one night journey from Venice back to London, and everyone's in black tie and wearing ball gowns and eye masks and things. And it was it was a really, really fun night. It's very theatrical because obviously that's just not what train travel is really like. But I did like that sort of 
sense of occasion and trying to recreate something that we just don't have anymore. Um, and again, the food was really, it was fantastic food on board. So there is that sort of relationship between travel and food, no? Yeah, absolutely. Travel and food. The, the trains and food is a really key thing um, that I'm trying to, I'm sort of looking into exploring that a bit more, actually, because you do learn so much about the culture of a, of a country in terms of its food by traveling on trains, because you often get a lot of local product, mm. especially on a long distance train. They'll just pick up whatever is local to that region you're traveling through. So you learn a lot about what people eat and how they eat when you're on board. And people will often explain to you, you know, this kind of ingredient is from here and we, we eat this in the morning, not in the evening. And in Japan specifically, they have um, what they call ekiben, which are station boxes. And they're the bento boxes that you get in Japan, which have their lunchtime boxes, basically, and they have everything sort of really nicely compartmentalized with little balls of rice and everything fits in. It's very pretty. It looks like a jewelry box which features stuff that is unique to the region. And there are bloggers in Japan who actually travel the trains just to write about the different ekiben that you can pick up at the different stations. So over, over there, it's very, very key to train travel. If there was one thing that you were to pick, maybe two, how travel has transformed you, what would they be? Travel has made me a lot less bothered by luxury, I think. So when I travel now, I... I don't pack very much because I realized that you only use what you've taken. And so if you take, you know, 10 dresses and 10 pairs of shoes, you'll invariably just be carrying all of that stuff and you could use them, but you probably won't. And you find that it's absolute waste of time. If I take one dress, one pair of flip-flops, a bit of Vaseline and a bit of eyeshadow, one pair of pearl earrings, it's amazing how much you can transform how you look from the day into the evening. A pair of earrings changes everything. As soon as you have a pair of earrings in, you look presentable straight away. But I just don't, I don't worry about having things. I don't really care for things anymore. So I have very few toiletries. And I just, I don't really care about my appearance in the same way that I used to when I was younger. You're just so much more comfortable when you haven't got things around you and you're not worried about losing them either, unless you have the less you're likely to lose. But also when you do get someone, you realize you need it. If you're desperate, you can always buy these things out there. Um, and I found that when I packed almost nothing, I didn't feel like I didn't have anything once I'd arrived anywhere. It, it made me feel a lot less materialistic. But that's beautiful. Just, that's profound, actually. I don't need these things. And also having witnessed other people not having things and not needing things and just seeing how well people function without excess. Yeah. has it wasn't a conscious thing I think it's just filtered into my way of being that I don't really bother about these things anymore and my poor kids um suffer the same fate because they have very few toys <laughs> they don't have tons of shoes but it's great because they don't you know they don't know what they don't have so yeah. they make use of whatever they have and they seem I mean they're, they're quite happy with this they, they don't really mind what so. does achievement mean to you Manisha? Achievement. I think achievement is meeting your own aspirations. I really want to emphasize that it's your own aspirations because achievement can mean so many different things to different people. Um, achievement can also be scaling Mount Everest if that's what you need to do or want to do to feel like you've lived up to your own expectations. Um, so I think 
it's absolutely fine to have anything as an achievement as long as you're the one that's satisfied by it. You might feel like people are watching you and judging you and looking at what you've achieved, but actually they're not. Everyone's just worrying about themselves. Even if you don't do what you think you should have done by a certain point in life, that's... Now I know, now really I know where deal. your, uh, you know, where your theory of having less and not having anything comes from. You're like, no one's watching. How do I care? When I worried, I worried about doing my second book because my, my India book, I traveled in 2010 and the book came out in 2012, which is actually quite fast turnaround for a book I've now realized. And I really panicked between that book coming out and then doing my next one. And I thought people are going to just forget that I ever did a book. Um, you know, publishers will forget that I did a book and no one will commission me. I'll drop off the radar. Um, and my agent said, no, just take your time to do one that you really enjoy and make sure it's something that you actually want to do. And so when I finally decided that I really wanted to do trains again, I went off in 2015 and that, Around the World in 80 Trains only came out in 2019. So it was seven years between publishing the first one and doing the second one. And I realized straight away that actually all the people in between who'd enjoyed the first book, they were just happy. They thought it was a bonus that I'd happened to have done a second one. None of them thought, gosh, it's been seven years since she did that. What has she done in between? And I realized that you don't have to keep churning out stuff all the time. You can do it at your own pace. Um, and actually, the longer you wait on something, the better it is. And I ended up doing another one almost within a year because um, that's just how things are. Things just happen that way. And I did a big, huge coffee table book called Epic Train Journeys during lockdown, which happened to just come at me. I just had someone get in touch saying, we're doing this book and we think you'd be a good fit for it. Would you like to? And I said, brilliant. So they said, can you come up with 50 of your favorite train journeys and write about them? And because I had already done all of that travel, I was able to put it together. So that was that was actually my third book. So so you just don't know what's going to happen. You really don't. Um, but there's no point worrying about it because no, honestly, nobody, nobody else is looking at what you're doing apart from maybe your parents. Beautiful, beautiful. Thank you so much for sharing these experiences. Thank you for being the wonderful woman that you are. May you continue traveling. You. May you continue writing. And may you continue you. sharing all these wonderful experiences with us. Oh, I will. I definitely will. <laughs> Thank you. Thanks, Vanisha. Thanks so much for having me on. Thanks for tuning in. Feel free to share your thoughts and feedback in the comment section. Do rate us on Apple Podcasts if you like the episode. Subscribe or hit follow Voice of Achievers on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Hubhopper, Spotify, GeoSavan, Ghana or wherever you get your podcasts from. Send us an email on editor at voiceofachievers.com or find us on voiceofachievers.com to share guest suggestions or topics that you'd like us to cover. Don't forget to tune in next week again. Voice of Achievers on EP Media.